there is an end to the story. But the lives of the people involved go on, as you're suggesting. And that is fascinating to me with memoir. This is Daring to Tell, the podcast where writers read their own true stories of personal daring, and then we talk about it. I am your host, Michelle Rado. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. Today's episode is a daring to tell bonus. After I read Gretchen Charrington's memoir, The Butcher, The Embezzler, and The Fall Guy, a family memoir of scandal and greed in the meat industry, I was in a bit of a quandary. This is a book that is not only a memoir, a generation's deep memoir, but also a mystery. An open inquiry into what she might be able to discover about the character of her grandfather, A.L. Eberhardt. He was a high-up executive, a salesman, who helped grow butcher George Hormel's family business into an innovative and successful meatpacking company. Grow it did for a couple of decades in the early 1900s until it was discovered that their head financial guy, Cy Thompson, had been embezzling from the company for about a decade. Before the discovery of the embezzlement, life was good. During the uncovering, everything became murky and under question, including A.L. Eberhardt's loyalty, integrity, and even potential involvement. How far had the rot spread? Had he been involved? Had he known? Then, George Hormel required Eberhardt's resignation. Eberhardt conceded. This was the seminal event that set off shockwaves through a family for generations. The after of this event has not been forgotten. If you have not read this book yet, and you are at all inclined, this is the point where I would suggest you pause your listening and check out the first conversation I had with Gretchen from June of this year. That conversation came out the day that her book was released into the world. I wanted no spoilers in that conversation. At the end, I invited her back for the after folks had read the book conversation so we could fully discuss the many revelations she found in the decades of her search for answers about her grandfather, about this legendary resignation slash firing, and how it's grown to have a narrative of its own in her family. Can someone so deep in a family and in a family history step back enough and open her mind to question what has been taken for granted and lived as true with a genuine fresh investigation, with objectivity. Her book is about that very quest, and this is the discussion where we look at befores and afters of the three title characters, The Butcher, George Hormel, the embezzler, Cy Thompson, and the fall guy, Gretchen's grandfather, 
A.L. Eberhardt. I was thinking about this sort of before and after idea because that was our before conversation. This is our after conversation. So we're going to talk about understanding the full swath of the book and what you've been through because that is the... (laughs) That's the interesting part to me. And so I can certainly share some of my thoughts about what I read going through it. But I'm also just so curious to hear some of your thoughts for after going through all of this and writing it. Yes. And especially after having just been in Austin, Minnesota for the fourth time in my life. Yes. Um, Yeah. That one. Let's hold on that because I am very curious to hear about that. Maybe I'll start with a little bit of that before and after my own observation. When we talked the first time, I gave an assessment of these three characters and my thoughts of them. And I had sort of thought George Hormel was an interesting person and an innovator. And in a weird way, in spite of, you know, your grandfather's experience getting fired. I thought of him as a good guy. Mm -hmm. There was Cy Thompson, who was clearly the bad guy. Although Mm -hmm. your, was it your grandfather or your dad who had had sort of this, a little twisted uh, appreciation for him or something? That's not the right. Yes, that was more my dad. Yes, in terms of the ambassador. Yes, I think maybe not twisted so much as differing views of him. He, He was not, purely bad as I heard it. Right. Um, he was also incredibly inventive and imaginative. And oh my goodness, how he could get away with this big embezzlement right under the eyes of the executives. So there was some, I think some almost appreciation. Yeah. You know, weird respect in a sense. What, you know? Exactly. Weird um, respect for how he did what he did. Yeah, yeah. After all that, I more marvel a little at his character. Mm -hmm. which is, I think, the most one-dimensional almost of all of them. But, of course, we have some surprising twists with him in the end, too, Mm -hmm. with uh, not only the embezzlement, but these other morals charges that he went to Mm -hmm. jail for a second time. So that was really like, oh. And then there's your grandfather, who I guess it feels like through your exploration through this whole book, you you kind of do a 360 degree turn like you're ready to say is he really innocent and by the end you were like he was wronged <laughs> you know and when i read about the technicality of if you resign you have to turn back your stock yes which was one of the real just twist yeah. of the knife ironies of the whole situation that even the stock that was not worth anything anymore, he was forced to turn back. Correct. And ugh. and so the lowest moment of your grandfather having to start over, I mean, after six months of trying to figure out how can we fix this right after the embezzlement comes out, there's this big trip to Chicago. The bankers agree to help him try and transition this period Mm because it was too big to fail. I mean, it was just such a captivating look at a company from the inside when something terrible happens and 
the decision that does get made to like save it. I mean, we know those stories in our own time, but to see it in a different time and in a different way and a little more closely from not only the business, but the personal side, that was interesting too. So that was really hard to feel everything that your grandfather went Mm. through because with his wife dying simultaneously was just absolutely heart-wrenching and he did turn things around eventually but that's so I guess I don't know I'm gonna let you talk at some point (laughs) but that also was another sharp before and after I Mm -hmm. felt the change in your grandfather's life of he was fired his wife died he sent his youngest daughter to live with an aunt, right? Is that best friend? Well, actually, best friends of theirs, but yes, right. Yeah, and your dad and your uncle being old enough to kind of know what's going on. The whole question of not telling someone when they have cancer. Yes. (laughs) Huge, huge thing. So through all of this, there's these before and after moments. And there's also the before and after of you writing this book. So (laughs) one of the things that I felt was the revelation that you seemed to come to through the course of the book was the surprise at how close these three characters were through the largest swath of their time working together and into the embezzlement. Yes. So what were your feelings about that as you were discovering, you know, I guess that my grandfather and Cy Thompson were friends? Yeah. And that's a good place for me to start probably because in, and I won't go into too much about what happened in Austin till later perhaps, but having just come from there and having spent an entire day touring Austin and the environment around it, you know, sort of the the swath of of great land around it, it was even more clear to me how close-knit this community was back Mm. then when it was only four or 5,000 people in this small city. And George Harmel, my grandfather, and Cy Thompson were all three well-regarded, popular figures. People had thoughts about George Hormel sometimes as a boss. He was tough. He was All of that is true. And yet there was respect for him as the owner of the company and, and as someone who had done well by the community in the sense of providing jobs, et cetera. But really, when you look at where they lived, they were each, I mean, Cy Thompson's house and my grandfather's house, probably a half a mile apart. Wow. That's not very far when there aren't very many buildings around, Um, and uh, even when there are. And George Hormel lived across the river, so he he lived a little bit further away. But, I mean, if you walked, it was probably, I'm guessing, two miles at the most. And certainly they drove, you know, all the time back then. So the proximity physically was really clear. And one of the things that was sort of tough for me to imagine when I was there the first three times and still again last week is just the space without any buildings in them. You know, it's all sort of grown up now. There are 20, 22,000 people or something right. like that in Austin now. 
So if you think about the fact that they were working in a still relatively small company, I mean, there were a thousand employees, some have said 1500 even, so not tiny, but in a company where one would know most of the people, uh, certainly in your echelon, and they were all in the administrative ranks. Mm -hmm. And then you think about the fact that Cy Thompson and the Eberharts attended the same church together on Mm -hmm. Sundays. And then you think about the proximity just geographically of these three men. It's impossible to think that they weren't friends. (laughs) Um, And then in addition to that, if you think about the fact agriculture is so important there and everyone raises something, George Horma wasn't so much raising his pork as uh, buying it from others, but still he cared about the animals. He cared about the prizes they won. He cared about what was going on, you know, in the agricultural world. And then you have Cy Thompson and my grandfather, both of whom who had farms that were raising animals and trying to win awards for them in state fairs. It really is hard to imagine that they weren't friends of some sort. Then we add in what I was told by, and this is in the book, what I was told by a gentleman out in Leroy, Minnesota, which is about 30 or 40 miles south of Austin, and it's where the amusement park was built, that Jay Hormel, George Hormel's son, was also a very good friend of Cy Thompson's. They were closer in age, probably. And you know, the Hormel company at the big events that took place out at this amusement park, the tables were full of Hormel meats to be sold or to be consumed. So this is a kind of, I won't say incestuous because I don't think right. that term applies at all, but it was a sort of typical small town where people knew each other and close it would have been part close knit. Yes, close knit and very homogeneous. You know, almost everybody employed by the Hormel company. Yeah, yeah. Still nearly true today, not quite as true, but still pretty true. It's certainly the major employer. So I think that was the most revealing to me when I really came to terms with the fact that they had to have been close on some level. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of surprising to me because I didn't really hear that kind of thing from my dad. It, It felt as if the three men were more separate than that. Um, they were like these separate pillars of characters. And yes. so to realize. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, well said. So I wasn't impressed as a kid or growing up with their proximity as friends. I knew George Hormel and Lillian Hormel and my grandparents were friends because they camped nearby each other in the summers. And mm-hmm. Lillian and Lena were friends and did lots of things in the community together. So. Yeah. And yet, why wouldn't they be? (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know, and one of the things that even struck me was how Lillian and Lena remained close after the firing. That had to be weird somehow. I know. It's I wish that I had more information about that because Lillian did continue to show up at the Eberhardt home to read to Lena, to do her darning and mending, mm-hmm. you know, that Lena yeah, could yeah. no longer do. Yeah. It's a sweet anecdote in a sense in this story that I don't know whether they ever talked about anything that was going on between their husbands or not. Right. And they were both on the board of directors even. They had been earlier. Right. Do you? Can I ask about that actually? Do you think that that was more 
um, proxy isn't the right word. Like a f- like they were there as figureheads, like expected to just represent their husband's perspectives. Or do you feel like it was a genuine seat? It's a good question. I don't know that I can give a solid answer to it, but right. my feeling is that it was more than that. Um, yeah. My feeling is that when the several other gentlemen who had been part of the board split off because their company split off of Hormel, that George needed to fill those seats. And I do think that that was probably the peak of time when both Lena and Lillian were greatly admired in the community for what they had been doing. They were both smart. They were both involved in the company in, its own, in their own way. Um, Lillian had done all the books and written all the payroll from the very early days. And Lena had been privy, I think, to my grandfather's thoughts about sales and what was going on in his arena, not to mention cooking hormal meats at the company picnics, et cetera, the more traditional female role. But I think, and from a couple of people with whom I've spoken out in Austin, you know, they've sort of validated that to me that they think too, that George would have put them on his board because he believed they were good, smart, capable people. which is very progressive of him back in 1914 or I think maybe it was 1910 um, Mm -hmm. when they went on. Right. So kind of surprising to have more another non-family member on the board and also women. Um, Yeah. Very unusual. Yeah. And also I think it was his sister also he put on the board. So there were three women who came on the board at the same time. Yeah. I, I was impressed by that. And I think that I got the sense from how you described it, that it was not just like placeholders, that right. they felt like right. genuine participants in the process. Well, as I was thinking about this close knit aspect that did also surprise you, I will, I don't know if I did surprise you, it, feel, it felt like it surprised it you. Yeah. yeah. It reminded me of another quote I had read in another book that I'm partially through at the moment called The Fox and I by Catherine Raven. I don't know if you've heard of it, but I haven't read it. In the context of nature, which I also Mm. like the comparison because you were talking about just the physicality of being there. Right. So the quote is actually from John Muir. Okay. Yep. Of Muir Woods fame. Yes. I'll yes. won't characterize him any other way. That's how I I was like, oh yeah, I've heard of Muir Woods. Right. When we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched up to everything else in the universe. <laughs> Great quote. That's a that's a wonderful quote. I love that. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking about that in terms of this opposite end of the universe spectrum, but bugs. Because also yeah. nature, like you, what happens if we try and get rid of these pests? Right. So, right. You know, everything is tied in together. But here, this was, you know, everybody was tied up together in this thing. Yes. And I think that's why it has resonated for 100 years. And I think it's why, in my words anyway, it was, I think, traumatic for Mm. both the company and certainly for my grandfather, and then sort of passed down to my father and on to me. Um, I think that when you know, when you think about that quote from John Muir, and then you think about a constellation of people in Austin, every single person is affected by 
both the embezzlement itself, the discovery of it, and then the near collapse of the Hormel company. And finally, my grandfather's firing also. And Thompson's going off to jail. I mean, all of those very big events, I think, touched thousands of people in southern Minnesota. Yeah. You know, one thing to remember, too, is that in Cy Thompson, he had three farms, actually. I saw Mm -hmm. two of them while we were out there, and I'd seen the other one before, that there were probably hundreds of people working for him at those three farms. Right, right. So it's not just the hormone employees who suffered, but the employees who worked for him who likely suffered as well. Yeah. So that leads to a question that I had, because I know as you puzzled through the reasons why George Hormel might have made the decision to fire your grandfather, to ask for his resignation, technically Mm -hmm. fire him. These other farms and competing interests was one of them. And that didn't especially ring true to me. I Hmm. I don't know, because it did seem just perhaps natural at the time that people mm-hmm. many people did have farms and that they would be doing something independently but was it indeed seen as competition right yeah so i think this is it's interesting your response to that because i think it's like many readers response to it you know which has been what's the big deal <laughs> everybody was raising A hogs bit, yeah or, you know yeah. something chicken something so I come to this also, though, with the sort of executive management head that I have. Right. And I do think, and it appears to be true from George Hormel's autobiography, uh, even Cy Thompson's autobiography, I think he includes this too, that, you know, Thompson was asked by George Hormel on several occasions, and who knows how many, but at least on two or three occasions, how he could possibly be the comptroller of the company and also run these farms. Right. You know, wasn't he feeling too split? Shouldn't yeah. he let go of his job so that he could focus on what looked uh. like very successful farms? <laughs> and of course, oh, no, no, I no, I can't do that. <laughs> very quickly um, <laughs> said sort of that thing. No, 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 they're all run by my cousins. I don't know right. who with them. In fact, he was on their board, etc. And It's possible that he also said that to my grandfather, although I have no record of him having said that Mm, to my grandfather, but he could have. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of things in life don't seem clear at all until later on, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, George Hormel obviously accepted the descriptions by Cy that he had somebody else running the farms and he wasn't really that involved. And he may well have accepted any kinds of accolades my grandfather got for all the prizes he awarded for his steers and stuff. Mm. But after the embezzlement, I think if you are the CEO of a company and you learn that your executive vice president has been working hard aside from the Hormel company, I can see how that would begin to become a question a bigger question right for George Hormel. Yes. In the yeah. in the aftermath of the in embezzlement. The yeah. That yes. That I yeah. agree. That does right. make more sense. One of the other ones I have my little list here yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of questions that did make a lot more sense to me and that I had more questions about myself was this friendship with George Swift. Yes, exactly. That yes. 
Oh, absolutely. How, how did he not have a bigger problem with this? Did he say, yes. what are you talking about with Swift? How you come <laughs> you remain friends with this guy? He's the leading I competition. Yep. And even aftermath, why would Swift not snap your grandfather up and say, you're working for us now? Like that to me, I, I don't know any of That's those. That's an interesting question. Actually, I hadn't ever thought of that. Um, I don't, I'm, now I'm forgetting exactly when Gustavus Swift died. So George Swift at the time of this, of this embezzlement period from yeah. say, you know, 1919 to 2020, I mean, 1920, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I know, no, I've <laughs> 1922 or 23 was not working at the company. As far as I know, he was living in Boston. Oh. He had inherited if his father had already died, he'd probably inherited a lot of money. If his father hadn't died by then, which I just can't remember at the top of my head, right. he already was a very wealthy man, yeah. clearly. But it's a little unclear to me exactly how involved in the Swift and Company he still was. I, I, I believe that my grandfather first met him as uh, eligible bachelors in Chicago mm. when they were 20 and that they pulled up a friendship between them for whatever reasons. And then when the economy turned south, so about 1898, 99, mm -hmm. my grandfather's job, that he had started a, a gentleman's clothing store in Chicago. And he was having a harder time selling clothes because the economy was so bad. And he was mm -hmm. pretty desperate for a job. He was married and needed money. And the story goes that he bounded into Gustavus Swift's office and basically said, I need to work and I'm a, I love sales and can you put me to, and Gustavus Swift was so impressed with his sort of chutzpah to do mm -hmm. such a thing that he hired him on the spot and then elevated him quickly through the coming year. Right. So all that to say that he and George Swift, I think were personal friends primarily, not so right. much through the company. Now, whether he okay. went to Swift and Company because George suggested it or just he thought, well, I know George Swift, maybe I can go right. see if I can get a job from his dad. I don't really know. Right. But I do think also that that relationship must have been tough for George Hormel, particularly after the embezzlement was discovered. Yeah. And as you know, from reading the whole book, that George Swift was my grandfather's most loyal friend through life. Yeah. And really helped not bail him out entirely, but helped guarantee his loans to the banks. Mm -hmm. um, so Again, if I were CEO of the company and my executive vice president was such close friends with the heir of a competitor and, you know, was making proposals with him about sort of separating Hormel from Eberhardt, I think that must have stuck in his craw, if nothing else. I know. Um, I was going to yeah. say, I mean, would you in that situation at least have a conversation about it and something would be on the record about it and all those kind of things. Now, maybe that's more prominent now. Right. I don't know. Probably so. Yeah. And I certainly have found nothing in the documents I have from my grandfather of such a conversation. Right. Um, and certainly George Hormel didn't mention it in his autobiography. But just knowing CEOs and, and being inside companies myself, I I do think that that was problematic probably in the end for my grandfather. Yeah. It's one of those situations, Michelle, where, you know, you do whatever you have to do to save your family. Yeah. 
I mean, I think he had to do in a way what he did. I don't know if I would have done it differently if I'd been in his shoes, Mm -hmm. but I think he was doing everything he could to save his family and his finances. And yet, in hindsight, that might have been a strike against him rather than for him. Yeah. Relationally, at least with George Hormel. Right. But on the other hand, it allowed him to sort of get a little bit back on his feet. So right. how do we make these really hard choices, you know, it's, yeah. that are sort of gray? And there's a lot of nuance. Very them. gray. And um, I don't know, claustrophobic is the word that's <laughs> popping into my mind. Like you're yes. just so close up against yes. everything. So close. You can't really see. Right. And as I say in the book, I mean, my grandfather really leaned into his relationships in this terrible time. I mean, he had amazingly loyal friends and his relational skills, his emotional intelligence, if you will, um, on some levels, as we see it today, was extremely high. And yet some of those relationships also were held with the company. Right, right. On some level. Well, it just really... um points back to that interwoven nature of everything totally. and everyone yes. and yeah. and in a time um understanding a, a place and a time is yes. another thing that i have really um been gaining more appreciation for as i do concurrent reading with yes. other things that took place in that era because I've been reading, I was telling someone else about this recently. I can't even remember where, but, um, and I don't remember the name of the book, which is terrible, but there are, (laughs) there's a book of letters. (laughs) I'll, I'll go find it. It's downstairs. There's a book of letters that are back and forth between, I think his name is John Love. It's funny because she always calls him Mr. Love, but John, John Love and Ethel Waxham, who becomes Mrs. Love, and it is a courtship. She is a school teacher. This happens in the um, early 1900s. She went to school in Massachusetts at Wellesley. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think at Wellesley. And um, had a group of friends there. They all were school teachers. They all were going off to do other things. She got this school teacher job in Wyoming. She became just completely enamored with the family that she lived with. And there was a rancher there, John G. Love, and he just became totally smitten with her. They'd go Hmm. on sleigh rides, all of this. Anyways, so to read their letters back and forth and what they were doing. Okay, so the first thing that surprised me about this time, which sort of ties back to the question about your grandmother and uh, Lillian Hormel being on the board, was their very active interest in politics and what was going on at the time really involved. And my own knowledge of this time is embarrassing, so I can't really say too much about it, but they loved William Jennings Bryan. I think Mm -hmm. they Mm -hmm. were in, they were just like, we're really in favor of Mr. Bryan and we hope that he, and they could vote. Mm-hmm. Women could vote on, I guess, the state and local levels, but it was only okay. the national level because they said we, because they would talk about voting. And I was like, wait a minute, but this was 1910. Right. I could be getting some of this wrong. But anyways, in one respect, they're just exactly people with all of our same <laughs> fallibilities <laughs> and characteristics that we have now. And the times and the conditions and the things that they're dealing with are 
slightly different, changed by technology. But I think that the the day-to-day living and navigating through it all is so much the same. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's something that, again, makes it feel very much more familiar to us rather than distant. Unfamiliar. Yeah. I I mean, I think that's a really good point that you're making that I can't remember who said it, that the only subjects in literature are love and death or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But there's some truth. It was that Shakespeare. (laughs) Anyway, I I should know. Um, (laughs) But really day to day, there were the affairs of the family and the affairs of the job and commuting back and forth between them and the various neighbors and friends that people had. And Mm -hmm. so, I mean, I do think that on a basic level, things were very much like they are now. Um, I do think that what, you know, there are, in the case of my book, anyway, there are some things that are a little bit different, but this kind of gets to your point about technology in a sense, that, for instance, with between my grandfather and a lot of the animal brokers that he was involved with. So these are people who are not employed by the Hormel company. They have their own ranches where they're raising mm-hmm. meats or they might be raising cotton or they might be raising wheat, depending on the part of the country, et cetera. These guys were all sort of friends within this big conglomeration of companies right. that supported each other through the kinds of products that they bought and sold. And within that community of men, I think pretty much only probably at that time, was what appears in my grandfather's letters to be a sort of informal borrowing and lending system outside of the banks where, you know, some guy in Texas is a little short on a loan, but his crop is coming in the next week. And my grandfather sends him a few hundred dollars or what some number and then gets paid back in a week, let's say, Mm, or or a month. So that kind of lending system was sort of, that was a surprise to me. I did not know that that sort of thing took place. I've certainly seen it, you know, in families and, you know, other places, but I, I didn't know that kind of professionals were lending money to each other. And so on a certain level, my grandfather, when his finances collapsed, the fact that he reached out to these broker friends of his, they weren't all brokers, but some of them were, wasn't particularly unusual because Uh, they had been doing that all along. I just think the numbers had probably been smaller. Um, So whereas he needed $25,000 to get through the next quarter and then $75,000 to get through the next quarter back then, dollar value back then, considerably more now, Mm -hmm. you know, he really needed financial help. And so he reached out to these folks and they supplied him as I suspect he had in the past to them in smaller amounts. Mm -hmm. So this also would have been a tough thing, I think, for Mr. Hormel to um, accept, you know, because these brokers were doing business, yes, with A.L. Eberhardt, but it was A.L. Eberhardt on behalf of the Hormel company. Right. And so, you know, again, was my grandfather misguided in doing that? Yes, from a sort of black and white point of view. Right. Was he trying to save his wife from dying from cancer? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There was no medical insurance. There was no Medicare, Social Security. There were no public supports for someone dying of cancer. 
And it was incredibly expensive to give her the best care that he could, which was mm -hmm. his primary goal. So anyway, I mean, I do think the times, you know, that may exist in certain communities still today. Those kinds of informal lending systems do exist today. Yeah. But probably, I mean, I would think not at sort of major corporations or in that kind of situation. Right. That would not be allowed at all. Right, right. And so what about these two banknotes that you find in a box at the very right. end? That is like the what? Yes, right. So just to remind people or yeah. for readers who haven't read it yet, that I thought I had sort of put the story to bed after my yeah. third trip to Austin. And then I remembered back in New Hampshire, where I used to live, say six months later, that oh my gosh, there's still one more book in my father's archives at the Dartmouth College Library. Book or I box? Haven't... Box, excuse yeah. me. One more box out yeah. of the four yeah. that I haven't actually gone through. And so I called the library and said, you know, I'm going to come up and spend a few days looking at this last box. And when I started flipping through the papers within the box, it was all kinds of things that I'd already seen before, letters, back and forth with friends of his in the industry, some letters to his wife, his children, those kinds of things. I assume that those are copies of things that, or those are the letters that Lena would have saved, for instance, um, right. and my father would have saved, and that's how they got into the archives. But in any case, I'm flipping through these pages, and then all of a sudden there's an 8 by 11 sheet. You know, it's a sort of a three-sentence letter to my grandfather from one of his bankers, simply reporting that his loan for one was about $1,200 has been paid with interest. So we're clearing out the loan payment received by Ransom J. Thompson. I was just gobsmacked. I was stunned. Yeah. It was the thing I hoped I wouldn't find right. for many years. And yet there it was in black and white from the president of the bank. And I, I don't know, I, I sat back yeah. against the chair, you know, and I, I just was like, what do I do with this? How do I deal with this? What do I think of this? Is it okay? Is it wrong? You know, just all those questions flooding your brain kind of, well, of course, I immediately knew that it wasn't good. That was clear for my grandfather. So then, you know, I flipped through more and I came across one more, sort of in the same amount. I think this one was more like $2,100. These were significant sums back then. Right, right. So it would not, you know, it would have been many times that today. Right, right. So they were fairly large numbers, really. And with the two of them, I, you know, I couldn't pretend it was only once, you know, there was now. Right, right. There were now two. Yeah. There were no more. There were no others than that. And this raised... So many questions for me, Michelle. I just, I can't even tell you how many questions yeah, are raised. Yeah. From a very almost superficial level, why did my father leave them in the box, you know, in his archives? Yeah. Did that mean that my father had never read any of these documents? My father was now gone, so I couldn't right. ask him directly. Had he simply swept up these boxes out of his grandfather's belongings at some point in his life, held on to them. And then when his literary archives were provided to Dartmouth, had he simply 
thought, well, they'll be safe there. I'll give mm. these boxes too. Yeah. It's, I don't know my father well enough really to be completely certain whether he read them or not. I could argue right. it either way and yeah. feel confident that he either had and then chose not to tell anybody yeah. or hadn't. And I was the first one in the family to read them. I think either really could have been true. So just on that level, what my father knew, right. what he didn't know was a whole jumble of questions for me. Yeah. But then, then there's a whole question, and this is where my cousins play out with me in these I was curious about them, yes. Which is that what do those two documents actually tell us? Well, clearly, the loans were paid off by Cy Thompson. There's no arguing that fact. Yes. Did my grandfather ask him to do that? Did he do it in order to kind of be nice to my grandfather so my grandfather would be nice to him? I don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's Consciously still, or unconsciously. Con yeah. Consciously or unconsciously. Or what was Cy Thompson's motivation for paying them? Again, I don't know if my grandfather yeah. asked for help. Right. Or not. And this was before. So it wasn't, it was, was not the same. It was not even that he was experiencing the dire urgency that he had afterwards. So this was just correct. while he this, had his wealth too, which yes, is also exactly. interesting. Yeah. Which is also interesting because why would he have had to have help right, right. paying those loans off? Now, I do know yeah. that he was in pretty good debt. I mean, and yet he had plenty right. of assets to cover all of his debts. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, it's a very challenging question to really answer. I think right. that my cousins probably feel mostly that our grandfather did not ask for those payments to be made. I really just can't say. I really don't know. Can I um, ask, so if 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 he hadn't asked, how would yeah. Cy Thompson even know I mean, would that be common knowledge, like that they both right. are banking with the same banks in town or whatever? Well, like, how would they know? Yeah. I mean, it shouldn't be from the banker's point of view. Obviously, the banker, you know, right. shouldn't have been informing yeah. him or anything. Right, right. Um, but, you know, could Cy have known because he's in the executive offices and he has a bead on every penny that's going in and out of the company mm -hmm. and he has some bead perhaps on the correspondence that's coming in and out of the country yeah. company. Could my grandfather just have dropped the information? Oh, I got to pay off a loan next week to so-and-so Right. in passing somehow. One other situation that has been raised in our family is Cy Thompson did buy some animals from my grandfather. Right. Could he have bought some animals and then paid for those animals by way of paying oh, off the loan. Oh, yeah. Again, who knows? When when you're used <laughs> to moving things around all the time, yes, that yes. could be how he said, oh, well, I'll, I'll get it to I'll, you this way. Yes. That right. actually seems... I mean, I think it's... From the mind of an embezzler, that feels yes. like it could be true. It's a plausible consideration. Yeah. And particularly if Cy Thompson, as I believe, was grooming everyone in the company and in yeah. the community. Yeah. That he was an upstanding, fine specimen. Right. Yeah. Um, might he have also thought such payment would curry him favor yeah. from my grandfather? 
Now, both of these loans were paid off, as you mentioned, before the embezzlement was discovered. Not long before, but before. Right. And so it's very murky, you know, to really right. know exactly and what a lawyer would say in a court of law. I have no idea. You know? yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I guess where I come down on all of this is that I don't, like I said, I'm not an investigative journalist. I'm also not a lawyer. And my interest is really in trying to read between the tea leaves to some degree, given what I know about the family and given what I know about companies in general, as to what's most likely. Now, I will say that to this day, including with my trip last week, I have found nothing, absolutely nothing, that suggests that my grandfather knew the embezzlement was going on. I have found nothing. And if I do in a month from now, <laughs> you know, yeah. somebody sends me something or yeah, then I will have to reconsider. But for now, I do not believe he knew the embezzlement was going on any better than George Hormel, Jay Hormel, yeah. the accounting companies, the yeah. bankers, all of them. Right. However, I also can't help but think this was really a harmful piece of information to arise. Now, whether George Hormel knew about this, I don't know. Right. You know, this was a bank that was tied into the Hormel company. And so when the embezzlement was discovered, a lot of the banks had to kind of open up their books and and for the regulators or the accountants and, and lawyers and stuff to figure out who owed what to whom and where the money should have gone. So I don't know whether the Hormel company or George Hormel personally knew about those two documents, but I certainly had never seen them before. I just happened to come across them in that yeah. last box. Yeah. So it did sort of throw into right. a lurch my conclusion. <laughs> so yeah. there's, sort of a, there's sort of a false ending in the book and then this exactly. new information. Just as you're ready to like say, okay, yeah, put it aside. I did my investigation. (laughs) I mean, that's the other overall assessment that I see looking at it all is that you really allowed yourself to be open to, as we talked about in the first episode, to really say, I'm ready to discover. I hope I'm ready to discover everything. (laughs) And you did like you you did get that out of left field thing yes. at the end and still there's still not really anything conclusive yes and so yes. that's do you feel like i mean i'm assuming that it all feels very worthwhile that you went through asking all these questions and you gave yourself the permission to keep asking them. And I feel that you're still asking them still that someone could come forward with something that you haven't heard about yet, or right. that, um, that we learn things from the past and, yes. and it may or may not make a difference. I don't know. Like, does yeah. it even matter? But right. right. I mean, I do think that if I learned something else new, it would matter to me and it would sit with me for quite a while before I could sort it all out in my mind and my heart. But I think that, well, one thing I just want to say is that what's one of the things that's interesting to me about memoir is that if you write a memoir, you write for a few years or a few decades, and you finally 
decide that you want to get it published and you find a publisher and you get it published, yeah, yeah. there is an end to the story. Right. But the lives of the people involved go on, as you're suggesting. And that is fascinating to me with memoir. Yeah. So what happens to us as the authors after our books come out? What happens to the people who are talked about in the book, if yeah. they're still alive, is also fascinating to me because yeah. the work done to create a memoir is sufficient to change lives, I believe. Yes. Um, I saw my first book, Change Lives, and this one may too. I don't necessarily know what that is right now. Yeah. So I don't know that I'll ever know any more than I know now. Yeah. Um, it absolutely has been worthwhile to me. I loved my grandparents as a child based on the stories I heard about them. Yeah. I now love them as real human people. Yeah. Yeah. And I do love them. I so wish that I could have known them both. I know. I think I they know. were really exemplary people. And in Austin last week, I heard that from at least oh. a dozen people yeah. whose parents knew my grandparents or whose grandparents yeah. were great friends of my of my grandparents and heard the same and also kind of said the same. There's no way your grandfather could have known this. It's, it's just, it wouldn't have been in right. his character. And so those things are just as a family member, you know, really important right. to me. And, you know, I think my cousins all are thrilled, you know, that they have learned as much as they have about our grandparents as well. So if that was all that had come out from it, then that would be enough for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I was very curious, like your family, what did they think? And so it's all been gratefully very inclusive <laughs> and come around in a way that was satisfying, positive, you know, not alienating. So yeah, no, not, not alienating yeah. at all. I think, I think, you know, members of the family have slightly different takes on it. And right, I mean, right. all have super appreciated the work involved and, and the effort to figure out what happened. It's also included in the aftermath is, you know, some feeling of even more stridently, our grandfather was wronged. And yeah, when you go to Austin, it's all about the Hormels, which, yeah. why wouldn't it be? It's the Hormel yeah. company. On the other hand, you know, I think there is some feeling in the family that, that our grandfather did an amazing amount of work to help the company actually grow to scale across the nation in 20 years. And that there's not much recognition for that. Right, right. Anyway, those are those are just new new insights. Yeah, know. yeah. I was going to say, I mean, maybe this is what you just said, but was there anything else about your visit there most recently that was particularly um, enlightening or unexpected? <laughs> not really unexpected. I don't think there was anything that was unexpected. What was illuminating to me was just how much I felt a heart connection to Austin, Minnesota, uh, to the land there, once again, yeah. to see the big broad sweeps of acreage and the people there. The people have been nothing but warm and welcoming to me throughout. And it was really, really wonderful to see some people that I've known now for 25 years out there, as well yeah. as some for fewer years. And also to the degree that it matters, you know, which it does to an author to have, you know, like 110 people at the event packed That's house with people great. standing around the edges. 
a lot of people very engaged in the story and a lot of really good questions afterwards and comments from people, you know, as I was signing books, et cetera. Yeah. So I do feel as if there's a part of our legacy that has been revisited there. Yeah. And and I'm proud of that. I know. I was going to say that's actually such a wonderful thing for you to return there representing your grandfather, your family who was there, and to get such recognition for that is immensely meaningful with yes, everything that went on. It was. Ah. We had a lot of fun. And we probably, I will say this, we probably ate the best pork chop I've ever had in my entire life, which was a Hormel Duroc hog pork chop. And I'll tell you, uh, if anybody's out there who can find one, they are amazing. It's, it's funny you say that because a few of those moments when you were talking about even in the book, some of the stuff that you had yes. in the restaurants, one of my favorite things that I almost never have anymore is pork roast. And I mean, a good pork chop or pulp. Yeah. I am a huge like, ooh, that sounds so good. I want to go there just for a sandwich. I know. I want to figure out where I can find them back east. I don't know. I've never seen them in I know. The supermarkets. Not this kind of chop. I was going to say, there's a lot of things, and thank God for this, you know, that are of a place. And it's yes. what makes a yes. place special. And yes. would point. we... You know, we'll just have to eat whoopie pies until then. <laughs> right, exactly. What Maine is good for, <laughs> among many other things. Among many, uh, many, many. I have become especially partial to the whoopie pie, I will yeah. say. <laughs> it's pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, that's a good, very good point, you know, about that being a, a really special thing to have when you are in the Midwest and particularly in Austin, Minnesota. Yeah, yeah. Before we wrap up, I thought that it would be great, you know, we didn't really have you read anything from this, it was uh, after discussion, but I was thinking in that spirit, to have you read your dad's poem from the very end might be lovely if you would be willing to do and that. I would be honored to, that would be great. Um, so just a couple of words to set this up. So this is in the autumn of 1921, after my grandmother's cancer has been diagnosed, so the family knows that she is probably dying. It's after the embezzlement was discovered, but before my grandfather was let go by the Hormel company. And one day in the nice autumn, my grandfather takes the family out on a car drive around Austin and then comes back to his um, house, his home, which includes a 10-acre apple orchard. And so this kind of takes place in the orchard. This poem was written by my father years after he was in Austin. And what's interesting to me is that if you read it in one perspective, you can imagine that my grandfather has not been fired, that this is all about his mother's dying. On the other hand, you can also read it with sort of a double intention here too, given some of the language mm -hmm. that he uses. But I, I love yeah. this. I love this. It's one of my favorite of his poems. Um, so it's called Orchard, and there are two parts. One, lovely were the fruit trees in the evening. We sat in the automobile, all five of us, full of the silence of deep grieving, for tragedy stalked among the fruit trees. Strongest was the father of solid years, who set his jaw against the coming winter. Pure, hard, strong, and infinitely gentle, 
for the worst that evil brings can only kill us. Most glorious was the mother, beautiful, who in the middle course of life was stalked by the stark shape of malignant disease, and her face was wholly white like all desire. And we three, in our benumbing youngness, half afraid to guess at the danger there, looked in stillness at the glowing fruit trees, while tumultuous passions raged in the air. Two. And the first, the father, with indomitable will, strove in iron decision, in all human strength, with a powerful, complete contempt of defeat, six feet of manhood and not a mark of fear. And the next, the mother, wonderfully mild, wise with the wisdom that never changes, poured forth her love divinely magnified, we knew not by what imminent despair. While the older brother and the younger, separate, yet placed in the first light of brutal recognition, held a trembling sister who knew not the trial of fortitude to come. And in the evening, among the warm fruit trees, all of life and all of death were there, of pain unto death, of struggle to endure, and the strong right of human love was there. That is, that is really beautiful. And, um, you know, what was interesting, I, I feel like when I read that the first time, I kind of glossed over it, but when I read Mm -hmm. it the second time, (laughs) I was like, oh yeah. And even like most good poems, you have to read them several times. Absolutely. And, um, in the very end, even as you say, It is true I have found that our histories can inform us, even set us free, if only we are ready to let them. Yes. There's something incredibly wise there, and I don't know what other word to describe it, but (laughs) about how we can only come to these things when we're ready to come to them. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And probably my father could only come to write yeah. that poem when he too was ready to write exactly. it. Exactly. And I'm so glad he did because it gives me something to hold on to yeah. when I think about my grandparents and, and his and my uncle and aunt's upbringing and life in Austin. Ah, oh, such <laughs> good stuff. Thank you, Gretchen. This has just Thank been you, so much fun. A total delight and a joy. And I really appreciate your great interest in this book. Thank you so much. Another thing that has occurred to me as I continue to think about this book is that this book has been something that has continued to open up so many questions. I just love that. I love that Gretchen was open enough and brave enough to ask all the questions that she had about what happened to her grandfather. I'm also struck by the fact that that as she indeed receives some of the answers and turns over many of these new details from that time, that opens up new questions. When we think a story has an ending, it really doesn't. It only changes and morphs and picks up with new characters. The end kind of never really happens. It's only where we decide to stop telling the story. 
I love how she now feels that there still could be new perspectives or details that will open up or be revealed. So we shall see. To follow up about that book that I mentioned I was reading, it is called Lady's Choice, Ethel Waxham's Journals and Letters, 1905 to 1910, a Wyoming courtship. I also looked up that thing about the women's right to vote before national suffrage in 1920, and In fact, I did find this at crusadeforthevote.org, where Alison Lang writes, At first, the American Woman Suffrage Association's strategy seemed promising as women started to win the right to vote state by state. The earliest suffrage victories were in the West, the territory of Wyoming, granted women the vote in 1869, the same year as the founding of the two national suffrage organizations. When Wyoming became a state in 1890, the new government continued to allow women to vote. Three years later, Colorado became the next woman suffrage state. Utah and Idaho followed in 1896. Wow, that is just fascinating Whenever you think you know history about something, you go and look it up, and it's not always exactly what you think. It's just fascinating. Well, that is it for this bonus episode of Daring to Tell. I hope you enjoyed this follow-up conversation with Gretchen Charrington. I will certainly have a link in the show notes for her book. Coming up in September, I have something a little different and something super exciting, if I do say so myself. I will be talking with Charlotte Maya. Yes, she has been on before, author of Sushi Tuesdays, a memoir of love, loss, and family resilience. I am entirely proud to say that I have worked with Charlotte over the past few months to produce her narration of the audiobook of Sushi Tuesdays, What a ride. We are going to have a discussion about the process, the project, and her beautiful, beautiful, gripping book. I could not be more pleased about this. I cannot wait to share it with you. You have made it to the end of another episode, and this time I am going to leave you with a little different song from my musician, songwriter, husband, Phil Rado. This one is a song that inspired him after reading a book from a different Mainer author, but one that I think works very well with the themes that we've discussed with Gretchen here today. It is called Milltown. As always, thank you for daring to listen. Can we ever really move on Be someone other than who we are some place other than where my eyes see the trees have been cut down to size should we ever try to hold on to something everyone knows is gone to some place other than where my eyes see the trees have been cut down to size
smart Don't wanna go back to the start Can we ever really move on And be someone other than who we are and Be someplace other than where my eyes see the trees Have been cut down to size Been cut down to size. 